listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the mystery of the dual paths to illumination. Tonight, we'll be reading from a book by one Mr. Max Heindel. It's called Freemasonry and Catholicism. And we've read from this book before, and we've covered some of this information before. But tonight, we're going to look at this aspect of these dual paths to illumination, according to the secret schools here. And this comes from the perspective of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, and it points to various other occult fraternities, and not just occult fraternities, religious doctrines as well. So we have this mixture of religious doctrine with the secret teachings, and we're going to see how much of this aligns, and I'm not sure how far we'll get into this tonight. But I think what we're going to do is carry this over to another episode at some point here, because we have covered portions of this book in the past. But we'll try to tie it all together in a linear fashion for you. So it kind of opens the doors of perception a little more for people for taking this stuff in, because it gives you a good linear progression of what the belief systems of many of the secret schools are and the various things that underlie those belief systems. So with that being the case, we're going to get into the reading tonight. And as is always the case, I will offer my insights into various portions here. I'll pause periodically and give you my thoughts on these things. Because, well... Let's face it, there's an awful lot of these teachings out there, and there's a lot, awful lots of misconceptions about many of these things. And it does us good to hear various opinions, and I, of course, have my biases, just like everybody else. So take, take it all with a grain of salt. I always do reserve the right to be totally wrong about everything, but I just want to give you my off-the-cuff opinions of some of what's covered in these types of readings, because I think it's important to do so. I think it's important to offer some insights into many of these things from a perspective that has actually looked at a lot of this stuff, read into a lot of it, and formulated opinions about it based upon information from various sources. So that being the case, let's get right into it. So, reading into the book here, this was by written by one Mr. Max Heindahl, as I said. It's called Freemasonry and Catholicism, an exposition of the cosmic facts underlying these two great institutions as determined by occult investigation. So, we're going to read part one. Lucifer, the Rebel Angel. The Rosicrucian Fellowship aims to educate and construct, to be charitable even to those for whom we differ, and never to vent the venom of vituperation, spite, or malice, even upon those who seem deliberately determined to mislead. We revere the Catholic religion, it as a divine in its essence, as both were born, to further the aspiration of the striving soul, and both have a message and a mission in the world not apparent upon the surface today, because man-made ceremonial as a scale has hidden the present articles to remove that scale and show the cosmic purpose 
of these two great organizations. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's referring to Freemasonry and, of course, what he calls Catholicism, which, if you want to get down to brass tacks with Catholicism, you're talking about the secret society that underlies a lot of what has been brought forward as Catholic theology. The Jesuits. So we have these two divisions, the Freemasons and the Jesuits. And of course, the Rosicrucians see both of these as viable paths towards illumination. Both of these competing types of viewpoints. And here's the thing. They all espouse many of the same core ideas. They just have different means of going about it. That's the only major difference here. So we have these two paths that seem like opposites, but they really are not. So you have the Freemasons, and you have the Catholics. Read into Catholic, what you will. I would say that's code for Jesuits, essentially. The Jesuits have encompassed an awful lot of different, different precepts of religious thinking, and very many different groups throughout the world, especially religious groups. So this is from where stems the edicts of the Vatican and such, from the Jesuit order. And now that's not even disguised anymore because we openly have a pope that is a Jesuit. He absolutely is acknowledged as a Jesuit. This was not something that could happen in the past but now it's out in the open. The veil's being torn away, folks. We're living in the time of Revelation. And we see that it's an occult fraternity that heads the Catholic Church today. And as such, this is what has steered and directed much of Christendom in a greater sense throughout the history of Christendom. The Jesuit order, disguised as the Vatican, pulling the strings, the Catholic religion, being the vestments of Jesuitry, essentially. Now, that's just my opinion from the things I've read and the histories I've seen. I can't outright prove that, but I think the evidence speaks for itself, doesn't it? So we have these two great organizations, as he calls it here, as the Rosicrucian Mr. Max Heindel calls it here, Two great organizations, and he has the letters in great organizations, the first letter of great and the first letter of organizations capitalized in this sense. So he's talking about these two great organizations, which he says that the removing of the scale that shows the cosmic purpose of these two great organizations, which are so bitterly antagonistic to each other. I'm going to pause for a moment. I don't know if they're necessarily antagonistic to each other. On a surface level, maybe, but like I said, they do work together towards the same goals. So you have these factions, these opposing power structures in place within the secret schools that want to steer and direct things in certain ways. And the Jesuits have taken hold of, well, pretty much much of what is accepted as mainstream Christian religion, and they've inculcated their ideas into the theologies thereof. And we have a lot of that stemming directly 
from the Catholic Church. And this is the mainstream uh, from where which the Jesuits put forward their doctrines and their ideas and the various measures that they put in place, the man-made dogmas that cause people's minds to shut down to any type of occult teachings. And this is something we see all the time happening. All the time happening. Many who consider themselves religious or spiritual will shut down when they come in contact with anything that they deem as an occult teaching. They're told, ignore that, don't look at that, that's evil, that's bad. And they don't want to know about it. They don't want to proceed any further because they fear offending their God. And I assure you, you're not going to offend God by looking at information. It's information, plain and simple, hidden information. That's what a cult means. It simply means hidden. And it's hidden for a reason. And it's not for a good reason. It's for a bad reason. It's because there are certain people in positions of power in this world that want to maintain that power and have that secret knowledge that they hold over the others so that they can better control or manipulate other people for their own nefarious ends. That is what the reasoning is behind that. And we have these opposing groups within these occult fraternities that kind of shift power back and forth from one another and steer things in certain ways. And sometimes they're at odds. And as Heindahl says here, that they're so bitterly antagonistic to each other, which I don't know if you could claim that they're bitterly antagonistic towards each other. They do oppose each other at certain times with certain doctrines that they pursue. They just want to go about things a different way. So these are power factions within what you might call the structure of the quote-unquote Illuminati. The illuminated ones, the ones who think that they are the powers that be in this world. And many times they do have a lot of influence in this world. So we'll have to hand it to them for that. But anyway, let's get back to the reading here. So this is coming from, like I said, the Rosicrucian perspective. And it seems like Heindel tries to represent himself as neutral towards this. But he does have an inherent bias that he will let on here very soon. We do not aim to reconcile them, however, for though they are both designed to further the emancipation of the soul, their methods are different. And the attributes of the soul fostered by one method will indeed be very different from the quality of the soul nurtured in the other school. Therefore, the strife must continue until the battle for the souls of men has been lost and won. The issue is not, however, the persistence of the Masonic or Catholic institutions, but the outcome will determine the nature of the training humanity will receive in the remaining periods of our evolution. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially, what Heindahl saying here is whoever wins out in this battle between the Masons and the Catholics, as he calls them here, or what I would say is the Jesuits, whoever wins out, this will determine what the nature of our future training will be towards the next step of evolution for mankind. And he'll show that he has a preference of one over the other, that he thinks one is better than the other. 
So let's continue and see what he says. We shall endeavor to show the cosmic root of both of these institutions, the purpose of each, and the training which each will inaugurate, if successful, also the nature of the soul quality, which may be expected to result from each method. And then he goes on here to say, and this is all in capital letters to emphasize the point here, he says, the writer is not a mason, and thus he is free to say what he knows without fear of violating obligations, but he is a mason at heart, and therefore frankly opposed to Catholicism. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So here's the thing. This is the Rosicrucians. Max Heindel was a Rosicrucian uh, of note was a very prolific writer. He understood many of the precepts. He was an occultist, one of the most revered occultists of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood in the modern era. So, that being said, he says here he's opposed to Catholicism. So he has an inherent bias towards Freemasonry in the sense of the dueling paths here towards illumination, and understand the Rosicrucian Brotherhood is often held to be a Christian organization, much like Freemasonry. So think about that. So all of these groups are held to be Christian organizations. The Jesuits are said to be a Christian organization. The Freemasons are said to be a Christian organization, according to some people. Now, they've often backed away and said that the only prerequisite is that you have to believe in a god, but you don't express which god that is within the lodge. That's not important. But in the Western tradition, most of the time they use the dressings of the Christian religion in the lodges. So that being the case, that's also regarded as a Christian organization. And the Rosicrucians are likewise said to be a Christian mystic society as well. So, that being the case, are they arguing over semantics here, or is there something else going on? Do they truly espouse Christian ideologies, or are they just using the trappings of Christendom to further their mystic teachings? Let's read on and see what's what here. So, Heindahl goes on to say, our opposition is not fanatical or blind to the merits of the Catholic religion, however. The Catholic is our brother, as well as the Mason. We would not say a disparaging, irreverent word against this faith or those who live by it. And should we seem to do so in any passage, the wrong will be due to inadvertence. The reader is requested to note that we distinguish sharply between the Catholic hierarchy and the Catholic religion, but the former are also our brothers. We would not throw stones either physically or morally, for we know our own shortcomings too well to attack others. Thus our opposition is not personal but spiritual, and to be fought with the weapon of the spirit, reason. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, according to the Rosicrucians, the weapon of the spirit is reason. This is also seen to be true throughout many of these other occult organizations. Reason. The Freemasons espouse that same idea. Do you know what this equates to? This equates to the Luciferian philosophy. 
reason, the intellect, if you want to get down to brass tacks with it, the intellect, they elevate the idea of intellect as the weapon of spirit. That's their weapon of choice. So we have here, he says it's not personal, but it's a spiritual preference he has. So it's nothing against his fellow brother, the Mason, or the Catholic, or any of the people they're in. They're all his brothers, you see. But uh, he still has something spiritually against them. So he will use the weapon of the Spirit against them, reason. So let's continue reading here. We firmly believe it to be for the everlasting good of mankind that the Masons should win and cannot therefore be sure to present the Catholic side in a perfectly unbiased manner. But we ask our students for whom this is written to believe that we shall try to be just. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially, the Rosicrucians, they think that the Masonic way is the way forward, as do many of the other occult organizations. So these are the precepts upon which many of these other occult fraternities are built. Same symbology, same types of ideas, just sometimes with different names. But the Rosicrucians are in direct alignment with the Freemasons, as we'll see most of these secret society groups are. And that's what they've brought forward today. So we have this opposition to the Jesuit side of things. Now, is that right? Is that just? Is that uh, something that is deserved by the Jesuits because of the things that they've done? Well, operating under the auspices of the church or allegedly as the church? Well, hard to say, isn't it? It seems like seems like they've done some heinous things in the name of religion, haven't they? We've seen this. I mean, you're talking about the Crusades. This was all directed by the Jesuit order. Not necessarily under the name of Jesuits, because they hadn't been formed as the Jesuits or named the Jesuits just yet. But it was the same secret society groups operating behind the scenes that steered the early church into these things, especially the medieval church during the time of the Crusades. This is when the Templars rose to prominence, and we had the Crusades. This is the same group, the same lineage, that the Masons and the Jesuits can trace their roots back to. The Templars. So this is an important period of time here. When you go back to that era of the Templars and the Crusades, and much was done in the name of Christianity that really did not represent Christianity, but represented, well, let's face it, some people who rose to prominence in the secret schools and promulgated some ideas and brought some things to fruition in the, the real world here. <coughs> so that being said, it was all about this struggle for power. And it still is between these factions within the Illuminated Ones, these secret groups. So we have different branches that have broken off from the original stream here uh, that the Mystery School knowledge came through. So it came through the auspices of the Templars, and they deviated greatly 
from some of the old, old teachings. And they incorporated some things into their secret rituals that were carried forward today in both groups, the Masons and the Jesuits alike. And this is kind of a simplified version of things because there are so many other overlapping secret societies that have prominence and power in the world today. But they share the same lineage. And some people identify with one portion of it, and some people identify with another portion of it, with the opposite. So you have those that would align themselves with the Freemasonic ideas, and those that would align themselves with the Jesuit-based ideas. And we've had this battle going on ever since. And there's also some infighting within Freemasonry itself. There's English Freemasonry and French Freemasonry. And there's an ongoing battle between those two factions within these groups, too, at the topmost levels. That goes on even still today. And like I said, they work towards the same goals, but they disagree on how to get there at times. So sometimes we'll see little shifts in power back and forth, and we'll see plans that seem to get derailed or things that seem to get pushed really fast. And then sometimes things go awry for them, and they slow it down and try again with different methods. And I think we're seeing that going on today as well. So it's this struggle, this power struggle within the topmost levels of these secret society groups. Because it is the same few families, family bloodlines, and same few initiates of the various secret schools that control things. And sometimes they don't agree on methodologies of how to get to the goal that they want. So they'll often switch gears in the middle of a plan and throw a wrench in the works. And we don't understand quite what's going on in public society when we see these very quick changes going on and all of these different types of spin doctoring that happen. Rest assured, they do their infighting behind the scenes, behind the veil, but it does manifest in certain ways outside for the public to see. So we see shakeups on the world stage. We see things happening where it seems like one group tries to get one over on the other group and reestablish their dominance. And this goes back and forth oftentimes. So that being said, this is one of the main divisions upon which those within the secret schools are divided. So we have here the Rosicrucians are definitely backing the Freemasonic ideas, according to Heindahl. And that's just this particular Rosicrucian group, because there are others that claim to be Rosicrucians as well, and they can't all agree upon who is the rightful one to be able to claim to be Rosicrucian and trace their lineage back. So there's always been this type of infighting among these people. But they always try to save face by saying, oh, well, we don't want to disparage our fellow brothers because we're well aware of our own flaws. So they'll, they'll speak the way that Heindahl is speaking here. That's exactly what they'll do. And, of course, they say the same things about it, because, as we see here, 
I'll go back and read the previous sentence, and then we'll continue on. As we'll see here, that they back these Masonic ideas for various reasons. So let's get back into that. So he says, We firmly believe it to be for the everlasting good of mankind that the Masons should win and cannot therefore be sure to present the Catholic side in a perfectly unbiased manner, but we ask our students, for whom this is written, to believe that we shall try to be just. Of the cosmic facts we are certain, but bias may creep into our conclusions, therefore each must use his reason to test what we have to say vis-a-vis Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. The great law of analogy is everywhere the master key of all spiritual mysteries, and although Masonry and Catholicism do not begin till we arrive at the earth period, they have their prototype in the earlier periods. We shall therefore briefly touch upon the essential facts. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Heindahl says the great law of analogy is everywhere the master key of all spiritual mysteries. Keep that in mind, the great law of analogy. So understand, it's very well understood by these people in the secret schools, the occult fraternities, the secret societies, that analogy is one of the keys to understanding all of these mysteries. The use of analogy, the use of symbols... The use of mythos, mythology, analogy. This is how they teach, and this is how they convey certain ideas, and this is how they understand things. And this is the key to understanding the things that they say. But he also says here now that the lineage thereof, of both Masonry and Catholicism, don't begin until we arrive at the Earth period. But he says their prototypes are in the earlier periods, and he's going to go on to explain this. And, of course, if you look at the Rosicrucian cosmology, or cosmogony, whichever way you want to term this, the cosmoconception, as told by them, there were different periods in our history where man was so different than he is now that we can't even barely comprehend how different of a world it was during these periods. So let's go ahead and we'll see what he's talking about with these prototypes here. Because he begins thusly. He says, In the Saturn period, the earth in the making was dark. Heat, which is the manifestation of the ever-invisible fire, was the only element that then manifest. Embryonic mankind was mineral-like the only lower kingdom of evolving life. Unity was everywhere, observable, and the lords of mind, who were human then, were at one among themselves. In the Western wisdom teaching, we speak of the highest initiate of the Saturn period as the Father. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here we go back to these things that cannot be proven, were never proven, still to this day cannot be proven (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. So they claim there was this older period called the Saturn period. This was the first period where the Earth developed, the Earth in the making. And all was darkness, but the only manifestation there was heat 
the invisible fire. And man, mankind himself, was akin to what we would consider the mineral kingdom today. And this ties into the Rosicrucian Cosmo conception once again. There's the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, and then there's man. Man is a kingdom unto himself. So we have these four kingdoms, and of course we have these four ages or periods that they're talking about here, the first of which is the Saturn period. And at this time, the lords of mind, who were human then, much like we are now, while we were just this mineral-type thing in early embryonic development there in that period, they were one among themselves. And he says, in the Western wisdom teaching, we speak of the highest initiate of the Saturn period as the Father. So what the connotation is here, that this is what we would consider to be God, that God himself was a man in a previous period, and this is what they teach, and the evolutionary process goes on, and that mankind himself, our next step of evolution, is to become God in the next phase, and then the animal kingdom beneath us will step up and be the humans in the next age, and the next period, and so on and so forth. And then the plants will become the animals, and the minerals will become the plants in that period. And then a new embryonic mineralized version of man will be born as the minerals in that period. And so on and so forth. This is what they teach. It's a great cosmological cycle. Like I said, there's no way to prove any of this. What this does, in my estimation, is it just pushes back further in time the concept of creation, the concept of a creator speaking this place into existence, speaking all things into existence. And all it does is it tries to downplay the idea of who or what the creator is, downplay the idea of God, that we can all become gods, and it's our destiny for all of us to become gods, and that there are many gods that have existed all through time, and it's an evolutionary process. Do you see how convoluted this gets? It never brings us back to the idea of, well, who or what was the source creator? It just pushes it further back into time periods that we can't possibly study or comprehend or know. Or prove, for that matter. There's no way to know what they're telling us is correct. No way. You can't, it's simply something that's unknowable. And that's the whole point. So they take it on the basis of faith. And don't get me wrong, we do take things on the basis of faith in the religious context as well, because we don't know everything, and we're not capable of understanding and knowing everything. That's the whole point. So they've adapted this entire complex system into their cosmology, that further convolutes information and makes it more difficult to comprehend when a simplistic view would probably be more apt. That there's a creator who spoke all of this into existence, and here we are. And we all developed here. Everything came about as a continuum. All these interacting parts came about at the same time. That's what that means by continuum. Because, you see, the very notion of evolution is flawed in and of itself because what came first? 
you could use that argument, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Or if you want to get down to it, what came first? Well, was it minerals? And then the minerals somehow developed into plants, and then the plants into animals, and the animals into mankind. And this is kind of what they teach. Or did all of this come into being all at once? And this is where notions of evolution just become, well, let's, let's face it, they're, they're just, they're illogical, and they're based on fallacy. Because one portion of the system can't come into being before another and still survive to reproduce to keep the system going. I use for a perfect example, look at the, the interrelatedness between bees and flowers. Well, which of those came first? Which of those evolved first? Of course, they would tell you, well, the flower came first. Well, how did the flower reproduce before the bee came along? And what did the bee come from? How did the bee evolve? You see, and how did the plant survive to reproduce? And how did the bee survive to reproduce? And what did the, the uh, initial bee, the very first bee that existed, what did he reproduce with? Understand? Was it an asexual union? Was the, the bee himself the first thing? And like then he was able to reproduce himself that way? Then how did the sexes develop? How did male and female develop? See, it's impossible, impossible to explain evolution as just this thing that happens somehow without any kind of intelligent design or guidance. It doesn't make any sense, but yet it's the thing that's espoused by all these mystery school teachings and by our mainstream science. And it's been grossly misconstrued in the mainstream science because the mystery schools, they taught about it in more of a spiritual type of a sense. I don't think they truly believed that, you know, everything came about from this, this mineral state and then stepped up through the evolutionary process in this way. I think it's allegory, it's analogy, as is taught here by Heindel in just the previous paragraph. The great law of analogy is the master key of all of the spiritual mysteries. So even these stories that they give us about these past periods, these are analogy or allegory. See, the, the Rosicrucian Cosmo conception is not in actual history in and of itself, but many of the occultists have adopted it as such and use it as an explanation for cosmology and cosmogony and for the progression of time and for the, the holding up of the idea of evolution as a process that really happens. There's no proof or evidence that that's true. Because I think it's intended as analogy by those teaching originally here. Allegory. We really don't know exactly how this universe came about. Or how the creator brought all these things into being. But I assure you, the only logical answer to all of it, and this is using their very weapon of the spirit, as they call it, reason here, as an argument. The only way all of this could exist and persist 
and continue is if it was created as a continuum. If all of these pieces of the puzzle were put together at the same time, interacting, codependent on one another, all at once, spoken into being all at once, all of these different portions thereof. Because you see, this is where we often get trapped in our ways of thinking. We compartmentalize everything unnecessarily. And that's what's been done here. We seek to describe certain things in specific ways. And thus, even going back to these old teachings, the Rosicrucians have broken this down into the, there were these four time periods or ages. There were these four kingdoms, the mineral, plant, animal, and man. So they break it down into these different ways of thinking, and they say one evolves into the next step as another. And I think it's a misdescription. I think it's man's best way of trying to understand some processes. And I think maybe man thought very deeply about his origins. But we do have some much clearer descriptions, even though they may be a little less, oh, I don't know, uh, how, how do we want to say this? A little less intellectual than this, as to how we came about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And all the things came about. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and poof, here everything was, all created at once. And, of course, the Bible does go on to explain that, uh, you know, there was chaos, this primordial chaos, and God fashioned things in the six days. He crafted all these things in that version of the story. So we have many of the same allegories and analogies being told in more simplified ways there. But I think many of occultists and mystics in the past, have taken it upon themselves to overly complicate these things and design entire cosmogenies based upon it. And that's what we have as the teachings here. Now, of course, they'll tell you that they were able to verify these things through mystical or occult studies, researches, investigations. And what does that entail? Well, that entails using their alleged powers that they gain from their studies and from, you know, the going through the initiatory processes and stuff like that. Their enlightenment, they gain clairvoyant abilities, and they're able to travel into other worlds and see things from different perspectives. From the spiritual planes, this is what they claim, and they claim they could verify all this stuff that way. Somehow, I guess they could peer backward into time through these different ages past and, and see that these things were true. They don't know. <laughs> they really don't know, but they'll try to convince us that they do and that this is how all these things came about and to manifest. But uh, So we see here they convolute this, and they just push back further into the auspices of time, time that times before this modern time, times before all this stuff was extant and exists and how we perceive things even came about, the time before that. So that's what they're talking about, the world before this one.
the universe that existed before this one. You know, that one that we can't prove ever even existed at all, or was even such a thing, could be the imaginings of mankind in trying to explain these things in an allegorical sense. And that's not to say there's no value to these teachings. There certainly are. We can learn certain important facets of things from them. But does it make it correct? Does it make it fact? Does it make it true? And that's wherein we get into a lot of disagreement on some of these things. So as we said here, not to belabor the point, I want to get back to the reading here, but not to belabor the point. So in the Western wisdom teaching, the highest initiate of the Saturn period was called the Father. And this would be what we constitute as God in our modern era here. So let's continue reading here. In the Sun period, the root of a new element, air, was evolved and coalesced with the true fire, which, mark again, is always invisible, and which manifested as heat in the Saturn period. Then fire burst into flames, and the dark world became a blazing ball of luminous fire mist. At the word of power, let there be light. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So understand, of course, in the Saturn period, it was said that the only thing that was manifest was heat, the invisible fire. And this is the element of fire in the classic philosophical sense. So we're going to see how this progression through these ages aligns with the four elements, the four classic philosophical elements. So next was the Sun period, which in introduced the evolution of air. You see air somehow evolved from fire in a process that uh, is never really truly clearly explained, much like anything else that they claim evolution is. So one thing becomes another mysteriously somehow. And then somehow these two, this new thing that came from the first thing all of a sudden becomes, when combined with the first thing, something different than before. And we have this evolutionary process. And of course... It's said here that this blazing ball of luminous fire mist came about at the, at the word of power, let there be light. So, of course, it's re relating this back to the biblical Genesis story and the creation story. So you see here, there was an age before the book of Genesis, according to these people, before God said, let there be light, and the, the creation came about. And of course, this is the sun period. Before that was the Saturn period. Saturn, so Saturn, then the sun. Let's read on and see what the next version of their cosmology is and what, what it is they espouse as their beliefs here. And understand that we have, since the teachings here given through the Rosicrucian stream, we have Masonic ideas that have stemmed off of these, and we have what I like to call Jesuit ideas that stem off of these. Heindahl calls them Catholic ideas. I don't think he separated Catholic from Jesuit, because Jesuit is definitely the undercurrent of mystic knowledge that underlies what is held up as the religious tradition of Catholicism, and has been the the vehicle through which much of the 
secret school agendas have been promulgated through the mainline teachings of the Catholic Church. But let's let's get back to the reading, not to belabor that point, but just trying to get back to what we're talking about here with these dual paths to illumination. But going back to the beginnings here, according to the secret schools, that's what we're looking at. So let's continue. So we had the the Saturn period and the Sun period, and of course he's still speaking about the Sun period here as we continue. So he says, Let the student ponder well the relation of fire and flame. The former lies sleeping, invisible in everything, and is kindled into light in various ways, by a blow of a hammer upon a stone, by friction of wood against wood, and by chemical action, etc. This gives us a clue to the identity and state of the Father, whom no man hath seen at any time, but who is revealed in the light of the world. The Son, that's spelled S-O-N, and the the S is capitalized there, who is the highest initiate of the Son, period, Son, S-U-N, as the unseen fire is revealed in the flame, so also the fullness of the Father dwelt in the Son, and they are one as fire is one with the flame in which it manifests. This is the root of all true sun and fire worship. All look beyond the physical symbol and adore our Father who art in heaven. The mystic masons of today hold this faith in fire as firmly as ever. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And thus these people refer to themselves as the philosophers of fire. The fire initiates of the flame. The builders, these people. So understand the analogy here. And of course, I think Heindel's right about the law of analogy being the key to understanding many of these mystic mysteries. If you understand the relationship between fire and the flame, fire being the invisible portion that produces the heat and the flame being the light, that shines in this, the two aspects, the dual aspects of that element. And we see that the fire, the heat portion of the fire, operates invisibly. Well, the flame operates in manifestation as the light. So if you could understand this analogy and draw it to different things, this is what they believe of themselves. They operate secretly. This is why they operate in secrecy, you see, invisibly. They like to make us believe that they operate invisibly, right? But uh, there's, there's more reasons for that. And many of these things have been convoluted and twisted. You see, I don't see any of these really old teachings such as this to be necessarily inherently evil, as many people do. They certainly aren't, but they've been misused and misconstrued by some of these occultists who have used them against the masses and who see themselves as being superior to the masses for understanding this. And here's the thing that really gets me. If this knowledge is so enlightening and important, why do you hide it from people? 
from the masses, from the public. And, of course, they always come back with their excuse, well, don't cast your pearls before swine. I'm sorry, that only goes so far. The whole point here is those who have hidden this information from the rest of mankind from time immemorial are complicit in this degrading of the human mind over the course of time, as we've seen, this degradation of morality in society. These are the ones responsible for that, because you see, in order to maintain positions of power and influence over others, they've hidden some of these secret teachings from mankind, and that act in and of itself is inherently a bad thing, and I think they know it, and it's only because they have their own greedy agendas that they've done this. They want to be the gods of this place, and they've misconstrued the teachings in such a way that they truly believe that they will evolve into gods in this place and that they have the divine right to rule. And they've brought all of these analogies and allegorical stories forward and they've grossly misconstrued them and attached various meanings to them that have historical significance and have what they call scientifically valid significance and the beliefs they've formed based upon these analogous stories and allegorical stories have become their worldview, their belief system, and their reality. And this in and of itself has given them a worldview different from that of you and I. And in so doing, they've set themselves on a pedestal thinking that they are better for having this secret knowledge. And they laugh at us and call us the profane. Or those of us that dare to actually read their texts like this and look into it, they call us Cowans. That's what the Freemasonic term for any infiltrator is, is a Cowan, which they view as being worse than the profane. Because they see those who attempt to approach these mysteries without the quote-unquote proper training, they see that as being a truly more dangerous thing. And they will say things among themselves, having a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Because they think the more you know about this, well, the more that you'll agree with their philosophies, if you've taken the proper training, if you've been indoctrinated properly into the Brotherhood, and you've taken the oaths and sworn fealty to the fraternity and put the fraternity above yourself because that's what they all wind up doing. They swear blood oaths to their allegiance to this fraternity. And of course, the fraternity's goals and agendas take priority over personal goals and agendas. They do help one another. I mean, there are good portions of these occult fraternities for sure and good aspects to them. But at the end of the day, they're playing for the wrong team, and they don't know it. They think they're doing good because of the things they've been told in their initiations and in their trainings that they've, they're given, their indoctrination they're given, their proper lens through which to, put, to look at this stuff. The things they're taught, that the symbols mean, and they are acknowledged... It is acknowledged by those within the Brotherhoods that they even lie to their lower-level members about the meanings of certain symbols and certain things that they do. 
at the lower levels, and it's not until they reach the highest most levels that they learn that those things they were taught previous were a lie and a manipulation. So how do you trust known and proven liars who admit to lying to their own brethren? Their own brethren, not just the outsiders. They've sworn blood oaths to protect the secrets of the order. They'll lie to you. A Mason will lie to you about what he knows about the internal workings of Masonry. What he knows about the symbols. Usually it's a lie of omission. They just blatantly won't talk about it or won't tell you anything. Because they don't want to incur the wrath of their brethren should they reveal a secret. Because they've sworn a blood oath and therefore have consented to being ritually murdered if they disclose those secrets to somebody outside. And that's why it's important to understand that this Rosicrucian, Max Heindel, gave this disclaimer in the beginning. He's not a Mason, and therefore he's free to go ahead and say what he knows about it without fear of reprisal here. That's the other interesting dichotomy of thought here. All these secret fraternities that teach many of the same things but have slightly differing viewpoints, well, one could speak about the other, and perhaps factually, we could garner some things from one about the other. And that's why it's important to look at all of these different things. All of these different teachings, things from the Rosicrucians, from the Theosophists, from the Freemasons, from the Jesuits, from the OTO, from the, all these various fraternities and groups, Look at the things that they have there. And they could trace their lineages back to many of the same places and the same teachings. And when you go down through this process and look at this stuff, the more you find that many are rooted in the same core tenets here. And a lot of them are based upon, well, fallacious foundations. Many of them have been misconstrued from the original teachings and inverted, and that's the important portion here to understand. Much of the intention from perhaps some of the original teachings have been inverted so badly and become so corrupt that it's not even what, not even what the original intention was about. The original intention was about, well, let's be honest about it, was about acknowledging and worshiping God, the Creator, giving Him credit and praise for this creation, giving thanks, being thankful, and paying respect to the Creator of this universe. That, I think, is perhaps what many of the original teachings were rooted in. But, of course, through time, mankind has learned that if you keep certain portions of various aspects of this hidden from others, you can control other people. If you can convince them that God wants you to pay me money, offer your money to the temple, because that's what God wants you to do, you see, then... You gain power over these people. And there were many early on who figured this out. Figured out how to manipulate people by making them believe that, of course, this person had a more direct connection to the Creator. 
And, of course, people, out of respect to the Creator, would, of course, co capitulate with what they wanted if they believed this to be true, if these people displayed some type of hidden knowledge or wisdom that they didn't have, were able to maybe predict events that they didn't understand or know about. For instance, it's said that many of the ancient priestcraft, they learned astronomy and astrology. They were able to predict when eclipses would happen, and they would tell this to the commoners who had no clue about it. And the moon would go dark, or the sun would go dark one day. And they would say, this is what we were telling you about. For the past how many weeks we told you that if you don't pay your tithes to us, then God will blacken the sun. So now you're going to have to listen to us, because we, we know we have this direct communication. So they learned how to manipulate people in this way. And, of course, it's escalated from there. It's about different tactics of controlling people's minds through the use of secret information, through the use of secrecy. Secrecy is one of the biggest mind manipulation tools that there is, always has been. Manipulating your mind into believing something that may or may not be true. And, of course, they did this for their own worldly gains. So that's just an example. And like Heindahl pointed out, this, is, this refers back to the law of analogy. So that's the best way to teach somebody certain precepts is through this analogy, this allegorical tale. So that's the, the same such thing. So you see here that that's the point here is you can make that type of a connection through a story like that and understand what's been done. But at any rate, they tie back to the analogy here of the various time periods that relate to the philosophical elements. So let's go ahead and continue from there. So we were talking about, again, where Heindahl is referring to the Sun period. And he says, the mystic masons of today hold this faith in fire as firmly as ever. So he says, the father, the, the one declared the father, this highest initiate in the Saturn period. He manifests in the sun period as the fire and the flame. And people recognize this and acknowledged him as such. So the secret schools hold this faith in the fire as firmly as ever. And the philosophers of fire continue today with this tradition, with that symbol. But let's continue reading. Thus, it will be seen that the unity which prevailed in the Saturn period continued in the Sun period. The ordinary humanity of that time has now evolved to the glory of archangels. Some were more advanced than others, but there was no antagonism among them. Our present humanity had advanced to a plant-like stage and was slightly above the new life wave started in the sun period, and unity also here prevailed. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So in the Saturn period, according to the Rosicrucian teachings, modern man, what we are today, we were as minerals. And then in the Sun period, we evolved into being plant-like, a plant-like stage. So keep that in mind as we go here. And this, this is what they teach in the 
Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception, that we've stepped through these various stages of evolution. So we evolved from rocks into plants, and then from plants into animals, and then from animals into mankind. But of course, here's where the the main differentiation is made here between what's taught through the secret schools and what's taught in our mainline science. Mainline science teaches that we evolved from these single cellular organisms that somehow erupted from the primordial soup, and we evolved in that way, all within this world we see now. Whereas the secret schools, they teach that the entire world itself had evolved differently from these various times. That they were different worlds altogether. So that it was a previous world than what it is now. Wasn't this rock that we call Earth, that we are on now, was something entirely different in that time, before this manifestation of the universe here. I know, it's very hard to comprehend and it's very convoluted. And they they have made these teachings that way on purpose because there's really no way to prove if they're correct or incorrect. There's no way to objectively prove that through this weapon of the spirit, as they call it, that they call reason. So does it stand to reason to think that there was a universe that existed before this one in which we were plant-like, or in which we were minerals. We were a mineral in that universe. And they don't adequately explain what happens between these various periods and how these various universes die off and then re- are reborn and remanifest or some such thing. Not adequately explained here. That's all part of the mystery. See, that's why it's called the Mystery Schools, because we don't know, nor do we have a way of knowing, and we don't understand, and we can't understand how all things came together the way that they did. And as I said, if you actually hold to that concept of the weapon of spirit that they call reason, if you hold things to reason, based upon the the way we know things now, we would have to say that this evolutionary idea is nonsensical on the face of it. That all things had to come into existence at the same time in the form of a continuum. It defies logic to think otherwise. But yet, that's what they teach, and they call this reason. Do you see how they've inverted the principle? It seems to me they've taken some of what we can say as being factual, and they've convoluted it to the point where nothing's provable, Nothing makes sense in a reasonable fashion, a logical form or fashion here, to an intelligent mind. And that's all part of the mystery. And of course, they could argue that the foolish things of God are greater than the wisdom of man, which that is directly something from the Bible. And that can be argued, but is this really the foolish things of God? Because they claim God was just a man in the Saturn period. And he evolved to be God in this period. <laughs> Do you see? It's, it's, it's just pushing, it's, it's passing the football further down the field. That's all it's doing. It's pushing it back further in time so that we can't make any kind of a logical connection to this concept or this being, this creator that we call God. 
And I think in my true belief in my heart here that a lot of these ideas were designed specifically to separate us further from our connection with God because they try to push our connection of God back further and further and further through various different advocate to advocate to advocate going back through this lineage. So they try to say that what we revere as God now was simply a man in the Saturn period and that that infers that mankind today will evolve into a god. But you see, how, how far back does it go? In the Rosicrucian Cosmo conception, they, they can only trace it back to the Saturn period. Now, they say it's continual cycles that this goes through, so that it repeats over and over. So how many times have we been through this? And where is God in all of this? If you trace back the logical progression of this, this would put God back to a place where we can't even begin to trace a connection back to the original creator. And this is where it becomes problematic in my view. Because the whole idea, the whole notion here of this cosmology or cosmogony that they, they push along through the secret schools just further separates man from God and makes man believe that he has too many, too many different intercessors between him and God. Makes no sense. But, at any rate, let's go ahead and continue with the reading here. So, we left off where it says, Our present humanity had advanced to a plant-like stage in the sun period and was slightly above the new life wave started in the sun period, and unity also here prevailed. In the moon period, contact of the heated sphere with cold space generated moisture, and the battle of the elements commenced in all its fierceness. The heated ball of fire endeavored to evaporate the moisture, force it outwards and create a vacuum wherein to maintain its integrity and burn undisturbed. But there is and can be no void in nature. Hence the outrushing steam condensed at a certain distance from the heated ball and was again driven inwards by the cold of space to be again evaporated and propelled outwards in a ceaseless round for ages and ages as a shuttlecock between the separate hierarchies of spirit, composing the various kingdoms of life represented in the fire sphere and cosmic space, which is an expression of the homogeneous absolute spirit. The fire spirits are actively striving to attain enlargement of consciousness, but the absolute rests ever clothed in the invisible garment of cosmic space. In it, all powers and possibilities are latent, and it seeks to discourage and check any attempt at expenditure of latent power as dynamic energy required in the evolution of a solar system. Water is the agent it is used to qu water is the agent it used to quench the fire of active spirits. The zone between the heated center of the separate spirit sphere and the point where its individual atmosphere meets cosmic space is a battleground of evolving spirits spirits at various stages of evolution. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we have the introduction of water into the system. The idea that this grand ball of now fire and air, when 
it came into contact with cold space, it generated moisture. Well, that's interesting. So, cold space, the void, a vacuum. Somehow it produced water, and water began to intermingle with this and produce steam, because you see, there can't be an absolute vacuum. There can't be a void in nature. So what are they telling us about the nature of space itself here? Do you understand why they try to make the claim that space is cold? Space should have no ambient temperature. If you believe our modern science as to the description of what it is that causes heat or cold, it's the motion of molecules. Motion, increased motion, creates heat. If there's no molecules, then there can be no heat nor cold. And this is wherein it gets to be problematic, because there's no such thing as an absolute vacuum. And that the way we perceive things in our modern scientific understanding is flawed. And they understand this in the secret schools, and that's why they try to stick to their older teachings within these groups, within these secret schools. And they know that we have this battle between the fire and the water here, and that this came about in the moon age, now the moon period, as they call it. Let's continue reading. It says, The present angels were human in the moon period, and the highest initiate is the Holy Spirit, or Jehovah. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we have this, this stepping down through the evolutionary process. So you see, man, who we would consider God the Father, was mankind, was a man in the Saturn period. The idea of the Son coming from the Father, and the two being one, manifest in the Sun period. And then in the Moon period, we got the Holy Spirit, Jehovah, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, stepping down through these various time periods, according to the Rosicrucians. You see, they were, they were just different versions of man. They were regular men in these various other time periods, according to the Rosicrucians, and they evolved into what became God in our period and what we revere as God in our period. So understand, like I said, it gives the impression to me that what this is designed for, this type of teaching, is to further separate our connection to God, to the Creator, to the Source, by trying to present us with very many differing levels of intercessors in in their place and claiming that we are just the next iteration of that and that at some point we too will become gods. Let's go ahead and read on here. As our humanity and the other kingdoms of life on earth are variously affected by the present elements, so that some like heat, others prefer cold, some thrive on moisture, and others require dryness. So also in the moon period among the angels, some had affinity for water, others abhorred it and loved fire. 
The continued cycles of condensation and evaporation of the moisture surrounding the fiery center eventually caused incrustation, and it was the purpose of Jehovah to mold this red earth, translated Adam, into forms wherein to imprison and quench the spirits of the fire. To this end, he issued the creative fiat, and the prototypes of fish, fowl, and every living thing appeared, in, even including the primitive human form, which were created by his angels. Thus he hoped to make all that lives and moves subservient to his will. Against this plan, a minority of angels rebelled. They had too great an affinity for fire to bear contact with water, and refused to create the other forms as ordered, but thereby they at the same time deprived themselves of an opportunity of evolution among the conventional lines and became an anomaly in nature. Furthermore, having repudiated the authority of Jehovah, they must work out their own salvation in their own manner. Has this been accomplished by Lucifer, the great leader, will be made plain in the following articles. For the present, suffice it to say that in the Earth period, when various plants were differentiated to provide proper evolutionary environment for each class of spirits, the angels under Jehovah were set to work with the inhabitants of all planets having moons, while the Lucifer spirits have their abode upon the planet Mars. The angel Gabriel is representative on earth of the lunar hierarchy presided over by Jehovah. The angel Samael is ambassador of the martial forces of Lucifer. Gabriel, who announcing the coming birth of Jesus to Mary, and his lunar angels are therefore the givers of physical life, while Samael and the hosts of Mars are the angels of death. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now... We're getting to the nitty-gritty here. So now this creates what he calls an anomaly to nature. And this would be what they call the Lucifer spirits. Lucifer, an anomaly to nature. And those that follow this philosophy, the philosophy espoused by Lucifer... This anomaly in nature, they need to work out their own salvation in their own manner. The builders, the philosophers of fire, they will work out their own salvation. That is what they believe. And this is what differs from mainline Christian theology. We can't save ourselves, we need a savior. But. Those who follow the philosophy of fire claim to be able to build their own salvation. They see this as being a superior way than being dependent upon God, or Jehovah as they call him here. You see how they've convoluted a lot of this stuff into these ways of thinking. There's no evidence that we can see to support any of the claims made here. There's no way we can find evidence of this because of the very nature of how this has been designed. These ways of thinking and these stories that they've told here, 
There's no way to know that we are currently in the quote-unquote Earth period, and before this was the Moon period, and then there was the Sun period, and the Saturn period, and back during these times, well, first we were rocks, and then we were plants, and then we were animals, and now we're men, and during those times, the, the men of those times, well, they're the gods now, or the angels, and that we evolve through this process and step up to this next level, next level, next level, and like I said, it all seems like a convoluted mess designed to separate our connection from God further and further by claiming that we need some type some type of an intercessor intercessory step between all of this going back further and further and furthermore putting all of these different angelic spirits and beings into the concept of creation. All it does is complicate things for the human mind, convolutes them, tries to put them into a recognizable pattern for man. And like I said, there's value to be garnered from these stories that they tell. Don't get me wrong. But you can't take it as a literal history. And see, these people will argue the same thing over the Bible. They'll tell you, well, you can't take that as a literal history. But at the same token, they hand you this and say this is a literal history. Do you see the dichotomy of thought? And do you see the uh, inherent, inherent bias involved with it? Do you understand the way they contradict themselves constantly? Do you see the hypocrisy? They'll tell you, you can't take the Bible story literally. But then they hand you this and say, this is the literal history. The Bible's not literal history. This is. This goes back before the Bible to a, a universe that existed before we could even know about it. But wait, we can't possibly. And, and see, that's the whole thing. It's illogical fallacy. It's all based on. And people eat this stuff up because they... They hand it to you in the guise of, this is the secret teachings. You're special if you know this and learn this. Not everybody can understand this. Not everybody knows this. This makes you more important or more highly evolved than some other. If you learn this and you know these precepts. Now, like I said, not to badmouth all of this because there are some good things you can learn from these stories using the law of analogy as pointed out by Heindel here in the beginning. But do not take it as a literal historical account of how and why everything came into being. And don't take it as a pretext that evolution is a real thing. We have no evidence to support that in terms of the spiritual or the material world here. They will make claims that certain adaptations support the notion of evolution in science. But how do we know in the spiritual side of things if the evolutionary process really happens? We don't. It's taken on the basis of faith and faith alone. That's all. Has anyone ever been able to 
ascend to the next level of spiritual evolution and prove that they have in any way, shape, or form. Because it seems to me if you if you evolve spiritually to the next level, well, then we'll be beyond what they call the Earth period here. It'll be a new period. It'll be a brand new universe where you will be angels or gods or some such thing, and there will be a new mankind that steps in that were previously the animals here and now. And how would you prove that? How would you prove that? You couldn't possibly, and they know this. That's why they could make these claims without fear of somebody calling them out for it. Because, of course, they'll say, well, you know, our, our really high adepts that have gone through the initiations and the training, well, they've done so well with this that they've developed these mystical, magical powers. They've developed clairvoyance, and they can look into these other spiritual realms and see these things, and they can prove these things. They can verify these things. And we believe them. Really? <laughs> it, it, you have to take it on the basis of faith. All of this. And see, this is the... This is the dichotomy of thought with these secret schools because they will make these same type of arguments against any type of mainline religious thinking. But yet, they do the same thing. And they assure you, no, we know the truth. We've been told by our masters, by these masters, these ascended masters, by these others that have gone before us that we've had this clairvoyant contact with. Have you really? Would you know if they were misleading you? Are there spiritual forces at play that can mislead mankind? I think so. Is it true? Is there really this evolutionary advancement? Can you become one of these ascended spirit masters? And if so, how would this be proven to you? How would you know? But anyway, we see here in the Rosicrucian cosmogony here that the Lucifer spirits are the martial forces from Mars. They're the angels of death. And of course, the lunar forces are the spirits that give life. And we've heard some things associating the moon with death, with the cycles of death and rebirth. But here's the thing. I think Mars is also one of those things that's that co-mingles with the moon idea. Why do you think the space program, the alleged scientific space program in the modern era... First of all, was primarily focused on the moon. And then the second thing, of course, they're focused on is Mars. Mars, the death idea, the moon being the birth idea. And the principles that we have today have shifted, where the moon is representing a death-based idea in many ways. We have this cold energy associated with the moon This death idea associated with the moon. This stuff has all been inverted as well in the teachings. And there's a lot of convoluted different teachings that go along with it. And like I said, all this stuff does is it just furthers 
the divide in the mind of men from their connection to the source, to the creator. So, what can we say about that? Other than these ideas do have some value and they're interesting, and you need to take them with a grain of salt, consider them. Use the law of analogy, as Heindahl points out here, to look at these stories as allegories, as a way of understanding certain inherent natural forces in things. But also understand those in the secret society groups have wholeheartedly adopted this whole evolutionary idea and have pushed and promoted this above all other things in the modern era. And it's based upon a faulty foundation. Based upon a faulty foundation, even if you use their own weapon of the spirit against them, as they say here, that being reason, you can logically reason out these ideas that they just don't work. They don't align to what our experience is here. Have you ever seen one animal evolve into another? Have you ever seen a plant evolve into an animal? Have you ever seen a rock evolve into a plant? There's been absolutely zero, zero notions of this throughout all of recorded history, throughout all of experience that we've had, yet they push this and promote this idea. Now, are there some perhaps spiritual truths attached to some of these ideas that perhaps have been misconstrued and abused by some of those out there in the circles of power in this place? I would say there's a good chance of that. Let's go ahead, though, and finish up this last portion here before we sign off tonight. Because there's only a couple paragraphs left, and I'm going to go ahead and read through it here, and then give some closing thoughts. So it, he, where we left off is it talked about Gabriel, who announced the coming birth of Jesus to Mary, and his lunar angels are therefore the givers of physical life, while Samael and the hosts of Mars are the angels of death. Thus originated the feud in the dim dawn of this cosmic day, and that which we see as Freemasonry today is an attempt by the hierarchs of fire, the Lucifer spirits, to bring us the imprisoned spirit, light, that by it we may see and know. Catholicism is in activity of the hierarchs of water, and places holy water at the temple door to quench the spirits seeking light and knowledge, and to inculcate faith in Jehovah. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, we have this classic battle between the philosophers of fire and those of the waters of faith, the hierarchs of fire, the Lucifer spirits, which are represented in this within this path, this, these dual paths of illumination, as the Freemasons. Whereas those that are the hierarchs of water are represented in the path of illumination as the Catholics or the Jesuits or the mainline Christian theologies, whatever argument you want to try to apply to that, 
So we have these two divergent paths. And our way forward through the evolutionary process, according to the Rosicrucians here, depends upon who wins the ultimate battle for the souls of men. Will it be the Masons or the Jesuits? The Masons or the Catholics? Let's read on and we'll finish it up here. As the vernal equinox is said to be at the first point of Aries, no matter where in the constellations it falls by procession, so the point where the human seed atom comes from the invisible world and is taken in hand by the lunar god of generation Jehovah through his ambassador, the angel Gabriel, is esoterically the first point of Cancer. This is the cardinal sign of the watery triplicity and is ruled by the moon. There, conception takes place, but were the form built of water and its concretions alone, it could never come to birth. So four months later, when the fetus has reached the stage of development corresponding to the second sign of the watery triplicity, Scorpio, the eighth sign, which corresponds to the house of death, Samael, the dauntless ambassador of the Lucifer spirits, invades the watery domain of the lunar hierarchy and introduces the fiery spark of the spirit into the inert form to leaven, quicken, and mold it in, into an expression of itself. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is speaking of conception and birth. And this is where in the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons claim that it's only four months after the fetus has developed that the spirit enters therein. This is according to the secret schools. And this is why many people will have no compunction with abortion. No compunction with it whatsoever because they believe there's not even a spirit resident in the body until after the fourth month of pregnancy and this is what's taught through many of the occult fraternities and secret schools so keep that in mind is there truth to that i don't think so i'm of the mindset that that life begins at conception that there's a spirit present from conception not just after the fourth month of incubation but let's continue on. Of course, I do reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of that. And that's, of course, my bias and just the impression that I get, my intuition that I have. But let's continue and we're going to wrap it up. There, the silver cord, which has grown from the seed atom of the dense body located in the heart since conception, is welded to the part that has sprouted from the central vortex of the desire body, which is located in the liver. And when the silver cord is tied by the seed atom of the vital body located in the solar plexus, the spirit dies to life in the supersensible world and quickens the body it is to use in its coming earth life. This life on earth lasts until the course of events foreshadowed in the wheel of life, the horoscope has been run. And when the spirit again reaches the realm of Samael, the angel of death, the mystic eighth house, the silver cord is loosed and the spirit returns to God who gave it until the dawn of another life day and the school of earth beckons it to a new birth that it may acquire more skill in the arts and crafts of temple building. 
about five months after the quickening when the last of the watery signs, Pisces, has been passed. The representative of the Lucifer spirits, Samael, focuses the forces of the fiery sign Aries, where Mars is positively polarized, so that under the impulse of their dynamic energy, the waters of the womb are voided, and the imprisoned spirit is liberated into the physical world to fight the battle of life. It may blindly butt its head against the cosmic forces typified by the first of the fiery signs, Aries, the ram, which is a symbol of the brute strength brought to bear upon the problems of life by the most primitive races. Or it may adopt the more modern method of cunning as a means of attaining mastery over others, which characteristic is indicated in the second of the fiery signs, Leo the Lion, the King of Beasts, or perchance it may rise above the animal nature and aim at the stars with the bow of spiritual aspiration, typified by the last of the fiery signs, Sagittarius the Centaur. The Centaur is just ahead of the watery sign, Scorpio, a warning that one who tries to reach the prerogative as Freemason, going to pause for a moment, now, this is all in caps, and this is hugely important. It's spelled P-H-R-E-E space M-E-S-S-E-N. Free Mason, which literally means a son of fire and light, will surely feel the sting of the scorpion in his heel, which will goad him onward upon the path where men become wise as serpents. It is from this class that mystic masonry is recruited with men who have the indomitable courage to dare and unflagging energy to do and the diplomatic discrimination to be silent. And that's the end of the portion that we're going to read here tonight. Free Mason, Free Mason, the Sons of Fire and Light, this is where the term comes from. This is why they choose operative stonecutters, guilds, as a perfect disguise for the speculative form of masonry, for the mystical connotation. And they adopted the signs of the operative masons, the stonecutters, guilds. The signs and symbols, the handshakes, all of these different notions... The mystery schools adopted this wholesale during what we would call the Dark Ages when they built magnificent structures with their skills as stonecutters and the secret schools inculcated these ideas into their craft. And it came full circle. So you had your operative stonecutters, mason guilds, things like that that adopted some of these various spiritual concepts and spread them that way. But it's the signs and symbols of the operative masons that have been adopted because these are real physical world symbols that can be used in the law of analogy to represent other things. This was recognized by these people in the fraternities, the occult fraternities, so they adopted that and used it as a guise moving forward. And then, of course, we had the whole notion of things that happened in the 1700s where they became largely 
what they call speculative masons within these groups from the operative ones. And much of this stuff really began to degrade at that point. And here we are today. But at any rate here, so we have this distinction here. These warring factions, these dual paths of illumination, the path of fire and the path of water, represented by the Masons, and of course, what Heindahl refers to as Catholicism. Or what I would say is largely the hidden hand behind mainline Christian theology, which would be the secret society known primarily as the Jesuits today. So we have these these different factions that have taken hold, and we have this battle between fire and water, and of course the unification of these two at the end of it all to achieve a common goal is what they work towards, and we'll explore that aspect of things in a future edition here when we look at the Molten Sea. The Molten Sea cast in the Freemasonic legends and referred to in biblical context. We'll cover that at some future time here, because that's in this book as well. I think we'll continue this look into this book, because there's a lot of valuable information in here that can be garnered. So with that being the case, now that we've pointed out that we have this this type of battle going on all the time within the secret schools, even though they're working towards the same ends, they're means are sometimes slightly different. And understanding that, we can see where the lines of delineation have been drawn, and we can see that clearly much of these dark occultists who run things in this world have aligned heavily behind the Freemasonic ideas behind this, the philosophers of fire, and have decided to go with this path moving forward by the looks of things. But I think they're getting more resistance than what they thought. And of course, the whole notion of this whole evolutionary process, of course, well, it's a grand idea. It's a grand idea, but does it hold true? And I think as they push forward with this, they might discover that perhaps they're mistaken on this notion. But I digress on that point. Anyway, I want to thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
See the train.